Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Exceptions Aren't the Rule, and we open with The Sphinx, composed by Ornette Coleman and featuring Coleman on alto sax and Don Cherry on trumpet. My guest is the founding headmaster of the Boston Arts Academy, Boston's first public high school for the visual and performing arts, Linda Nathan. Nathan has written, When Grit Isn't Enough, a strong critique of the concept of inculcating grit in education, as well as of its proselytizers and proponents. It's published by Beacon Press. Our music throughout also comes from Massachusetts, by way of the Berkshires not far from Herman Melville's Arrowhead, his Pittsfield home. We'll be hearing selections from the Lennox School of Jazz concert of 1959, performed at the Berkshire Music Barn in Lennox. Prominent among jazz greats there was Indiana University's late distinguished professor of music, trombonist David Baker. Art and work. These things we do with our bodies, our hands, our mouths, our ears, Linda Nathan's educational focus is on ways we are active learners. An arts education has much in common with a vocational education. An education designed to put learners in direct contact with the life of work and the work of life. Our language politics has shifted us away from using the term vocational and substitutes career and technical training, and this gives the game away. The word training is the key to grit education. Students are trained in compliance and trained to fulfill a particular use function. In the grit classrooms promulgated by charter operators like KIPP, the Knowledge is Power program, and touted by educational propagandists like Jay Matthews of the Washington Post, students are trained in submission and obedience, trained to attend the ideology of the trainer. It's no small matter that the majority of these students are black and brown, while the majority of their trainers, I'm reluctant to use the word teacher, are white. Grit has its place in how our children have to deal with inequality in every aspect of their lives. If they didn't already have grit, how could they even get up in the morning to open their eyes on their government-sponsored, banking-enforced poverty? But the game is rigged, as Nathan shows, throughout her book. Even the best, the brightest, grittiest students can forget to fill out a form or miss an email alerting them to a loan deadline and find themselves worse off than they began being now saddled with debt and nothing to show for it. On the heels of Black History Month, we discover the continuity of systemic poverty and racism in the U.S., made active in the bureaucratic processes of education funding. We begin with Linda Nathan's bona fides as a career educator who began teaching in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And now, exceptions aren't the rule on Interchange on WFHB. Who is Linda Nathan and, and where is she coming from? I think first and foremost, I'm the daughter of uh, a teacher. You know, that really shaped me, my mother's experiences. And I think I grew up in the generation where women weren't supposed to be teachers because we could be anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm that age, that, that group. 
But I think since I was six years old, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. So <laughs> here I am, mm -hmm. um, still teaching. I, I actually began my career in Puerto Rico um, as a Title I English teacher. And I think that really shaped me um, because I was working with kids who came from an island, lived on an island, lived next to the ocean, and didn't know how to swim and didn't know what El Morro was, the very famous uh, tourist attraction, mm. and they had never been there. So uh, those two things really helped shape my understanding of equity and, and how we think about equity. And um, that was a very important formative experience for me, teaching mm. there. And then I came back to Boston um, to be a bilingual teacher. It was in the heyday, if you will, of bilingual education. And, and at that time, you know, bilingual education was not a dirty word. Um, people were proud to be bilingual. And teachers were, bilingual teachers were also seen as family organizers because uh, it was expected that we would visit families and that we would help our families um, access the education system and access resources for themselves. So I really grew up at a time where that was what was expected of me as a teacher. So I think I brought that into leadership. Um, I had also studied briefly with Michael Apple, who was at the University of Wisconsin, and he said three things. I think I can remember them all. One was that um, our day was not finished at the end of the school day because we had families to attend to, that we should always get involved with the union, and uh, that we, you know, his whole thing was about the hidden curriculum and so how, how we could think about that also. So I think I was very fortunate to have someone like Michael early in my career. And then I met Ted Sizer and Vito Perone later in my life. And, um, you know, I now run an institute called the Perone Sizer Institute for Creative Leadership. So it tells you something about how important my mentors were to me and how much I think it's critical to carry on their work. Mm. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, but uh, a big part of the book is your work at the, um, the BAA. Boston Arts Academy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, it was privileged to be the founding headmaster in uh, 1998 of the first high school for the visual and performing arts in Boston. That's a, bit, a strong part of the book is that experience of yours working with those particular students. So much of BAA, um, I know you're not in this area, but mm -hmm. Boston is so shaped by uh, court-ordered uh, desegregation. Mm -hmm. And I was actually involved for many, many years with other attempts to start Boston's art arts high school. I, I actually started the first middle school for the arts in the early 80s that was meant to grow into the high school. But because of the court order, it was impossible. And it wasn't until the court order was relaxed that Boston was finally able to have a school that would audition. The, the fear had been that an audition school would would resegregate hmm. um, school system. It was very, very interesting. And so when I opened the school, one of the first things I did 
was to hire somebody who was deeply enmeshed in community work and had also worked for a local, um, very progressive uh, state representative and understood she herself was Puerto Rican and a graduate of the Boston schools. And so the first thing Carmen Torres and I did was to hire Blanca Bonilla so that we could ensure that the Boston Arts Academy would not be an exam school. Boston is so shaped, as, as I said, by both court-ordered DSEG and by three exam schools that have um, really skewed the way we think about education in this city. And we did not want to be that. We are very racially diverse and very socioeconomically diverse. And that is extremely unusual um, for most art schools in the country. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Linda Nathan, author of When Grit Isn't Enough. A high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the college for all promise. I think sometimes it's very difficult to have conversations with people about education, well, always, because most people think because they went to school, they know what you're right. talking about, right? right? They, have, they have an opinion about school generally because they went to it. Um, but also, all we do for the most part, as far as I can tell, again, is talk politics uh, right. And, right. and position ourselves in a particular uh, political perspective about what school is for. So right. the idea right. of what school should be doing ends up being political and political right. in an economic sense. Right, um, right. And that's constantly what you're fighting about in the press, in policy, uh, et cetera. So, again, your book takes aim at recent polemics and recent policy and in an attempt to say, well, we've done all these things in the past and they've had success, but we've also had – we've also sort of bought into some of the ideas that became mantras – that right. could have perhaps become a little harmful to us as well, right. Uh, right. which is a nice, again, a wonderful way to frame the book. You you recognize that even these goals, which sound right, everyone go to college. You know, everyone should go to college. Right. Um, doesn't take into account why, <laughs> other than the idea that we sort of put a statistic on the end of it that says you go to college, you make more money. Right, which isn't, you know, the, the, what I don't want the reader to think is, that is true. Statistically, that is true. But what I'm trying to critique, and, you know, it's a, it's a hard dance to do, right? Because I'm a white person mm-hmm. saying this. But I'm trying to open up some space for us to say to one another, are there other ways to help young people lead a decent life. Uh, you know, the middle class clearly right now is absolutely under attack. And, you know, for so many of our kids, even having a college degree isn't going to be enough. People are going to need, you know, wh- wh- what are we doing to each other? We're going to need, everyone's going to need a master's and a doctorate now, right? But I, I'm trying to, to ask a question about the value of work, and the value of work with one's hands and the value of work 
that may not require a four-year degree. You know, I know the history of vocational education. I know how vocational education for so many years became the dumping ground, and particularly for poor kids or black and brown kids. And no one's suggesting a return to that, especially not me. But I am suggesting that our schools think more about what it means to give kids, you know, from sixth grade on, fifth grade on, more exposure and experiences with career and technical education. Mm -hmm. That the idea that school is just about writing essays or just about, you know, complex math or wonderful science is not enough for me. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons I'm so proud of a school like the Boston Arts Academy, because what that school stands for is a deeply immersed arts education where kids are constantly making work. And so for me, career and technical and deep arts education actually go hand in hand. Uh, and that's what I'm looking. I, I think I heard Carol Dweck, who wrote, you know, the mindset, growth mindset, say something that I thought was so true. She said, if a doctor came back from 100 years ago, everything about hospitals would look different. And lots about medical care would be different. If a teacher came back from 100 years ago, everything would look the same. <laughs> and I think she's right. Well, I think sadly that, true, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there'd be yeah. a computer in front of the class now instead of exactly. a person. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's time for a break. This is DC Special composed by Kenny Dorham and featuring Dorham and Peter Farmer on trumpet, another one off of 1959's Lennox School of Jazz concert. The Lennox School of Jazz was short-lived but influential. Pianist and composer John Lewis said of the school he helped to organize and run, quote, no one is attending the school to be tested. Even if they couldn't play at all, they could gain something from the imaginative men who are doing the teaching. We're trying to stimulate their imaginations, unquote. We'll continue with Linda Nathan and the values she feels that are inculcated via an arts curriculum. Tonight's show is Exceptions Aren't the Rule and features my conversation with author and career education leader Linda Nathan. 
author of When Grit Isn't Enough. In this segment, Nathan details the strengths of an arts education and discusses the necessity for an anti-racist curriculum for disenfranchised white students. But your, your point, as you continue to make throughout the book, is one of community as well, one of relationships, one right. of understanding people, children, students, and who they are, where they come from, what their context is, and how, right. how to educate and how to be aware of context within right. the educational right. system. Uh, but, you know, this is the question, how we convince people that right. school is for more than babysitting, for more right. than waiting till you get a job, go to college, and waiting right. for when you go, uh, you know, for college to be a place where you just go until you get a job. Right. Um, you know, all these things that we sort of forget that they're institutions and they're active in our right. lives, but we are being acted upon by them. Right. And you're right. asking us to act within them. Yeah, no, I I love the way you describe what I say. Thank you. I I think, you know, the the recent horror in Florida Mm -hmm. um, is in some ways, there's no words to describe another massacre like that. But the students' reaction Mm -hmm. is so hopeful to me. The fact that they know to walk out, the fact that they know to organize, the fact that they know to say, and, and I think students from Massachusetts went and joined them, this idea of a one day walkout. I would do anything to have that happen. Mm-hmm. I think young people truly understand that they can act on their surroundings and on their conditions to change them. And that's what we want schools to be. We don't want schools to be factories or places of oppression, but we want kids to be partners in the creation of knowledge. And and again, that's why I consistently go back to the arts because kids as artists are often apprentices. They understand that to make a dance, they have to first deeply understand someone else's dance. You know, they it's just a very interesting thing about how the arts in a beautiful way forces you to be an apprentice first. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way I like to think about school is that we are there joining a club you know, of adults who are deeply interested in what they're doing. And therefore the kids come along with us and create some of their interests. Mm -hmm. You know, there was one day, one thing that, uh, at BAA, uh, now BAA does this wonderful project week and they call it an intercession. And it was something that we started back when I was at Fenway and the kids wanted to do a zombie intercession. And I was like, what? Like, what's that about? But that was their interest. Mm -hmm. As long as they did it, you know, with rigor and with thoughtfulness and planfulness, that was okay. So it doesn't have to be, you know, not everything that's a kid's passion is something that's an adult passion. Um, But we have to find ways in school to give kids opportunities 
to pursue what they're deeply interested mm-hmm. in. Because, it, you know, zombies a little bit of an extreme example, but kids will figure out things. I mean, I had a student once do his senior project on tattooing mm-hmm. and you know, it was one of the most rigorous senior projects I ever had anyone do. <laughs> he really was passionate about it. Right. And he had to do a lot of research to convince me that uh, he understood something mm-hmm. about the science and the art and the, the you know, particularities of it and where tattooing is in civilization. I mean, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But on face value, it would have looked like a kid trying to get over. Um, <laughs> And and that's what I think school needs to embrace that more. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, you're. Um, it's uh, unfortunately frequently, you know, you preach to the choir, right? Well, so I'm right. si- I'm sitting here and saying yes, 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 right, right to right. everything you say, and and even zombies. I tell you, I think it's fascinating too um, that you know zombies aren't kids. Uh, ideas or kids play things, and right. the zombie perspective is one in which uh, you you look at society through the, a lens that is very political, right? And so it, it's a I great it's a great this. idea. Exactly, I learned all this. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, but so, I, that's I'm good. Not, I'm not. Um, I mean, I know we're living in a terrible time. I mean, the the idea that a president of this country would call for teachers to carry arms is probably the scariest thing that I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just, I mean, I'm incredulous, but I, but I'm hopeful that the young people that I've had the privilege of working with will stand up and say, no, that's not, you know, I mean, that's the hope of the next generation, right? right. Sure. That young people will stand up and say, no, mm-hmm. no, we, we, we don't go to school so our teachers carry arms. Right. We go to school to make the world a better place. And guns aren't part of making the world a better place. Right. Violence, although part of the human, if you will, <laughs> part of humanity since the beginning of time, we can study violence, but we don't need to be ourselves right. in the violence. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Linda Nathan, author of When Grit Isn't Enough. A high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the college for all promise. Well, you make many points that that point to the difficult, um, again, again, a dilemma, a political dilemma, a divisive uh, politics that doesn't have students um, equated with anything at all, um, right. you know, so unless they are particular kinds of students, a big part of the book and a big part of our problem is racism, uh, the anti-racist curriculum, uh, trying to understand the world in which many uh, students live and the um, dominant culture as the uh, oppressive right. white culture generally. And we're, we're, we're afraid frequently to say that because, you know, white, right. white people will get mad at you. Right. <laughs> but right. Um, right. the problem is you have many, many, many thought leaders on the right side of the table who simply yeah. want to create an obedient, submissive class to work as cheaply as possible um, or go to prison and right. be an economic widget there as well. Right, right. No, I mean, you make very, very good points. I, you know, 
capitalism is probably the best and worst kind of economic system, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there are winners and losers. And um, since the book came out, I, I, and and since this president has been elected, mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking so much more about race and racism, and and particularly about white supremacy and white privilege. And mm -hmm. I know white supremacy is such a polemical term, it, it makes people get very angry. Mm -hmm. But the whole notion of whiteness, I, 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 I will, I, I think that's my next place that I want to really understand. Because mm -hmm. I've worked so much in schools where, you know, they're the minority of kids are white kids, but there are but they're there. And how do you help white kids? who feel disenfranchised because a lot of the oh, urban yeah. white kids that I've worked with have been very poor and feel very angry. Um, and that's probably not so different than the middle of the country where white folks feel very disenfranchised. And so how do you talk about white privilege with folks who feel already angry and disenfranchised? Mm -hmm. And and that's, I think the next place I want to mm. really do. In is is how do we because I think that that's the group that maybe can get us out of this mess mm. if that group can understand that even though they feel disenfranchised their white skin still gives them privilege mm -hmm. and and at the same time I think we have to have a wake-up call for our higher ed institutions to understand that when you take my kids, when you accept first generation kids or black and brown kids, you better have figured out how to have a campus that is welcoming and embracing and that is okay with diverse perspectives. And so if a black young woman says to you, I want a black student union, you don't answer why. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there, Linda. I think you're right about um, the difficult uh, nature of white privilege being confronted by white people who don't feel or understand privilege within their own environments um, and white people who have been taught that their enemy is a brown person um, right. as much because that is how class is, subs is subverted. You know, right. arguments against right. class are subverted by making it arguments right. against race. Exactly. And so exactly. I think that's an important point, and it's a difficult one to engage in. Um, yeah, very hard, especially in a city like this where poor black people and poor white people were literally pitted against each other right. and told, go to school together and make it work. Right. Uh, you know, uprooted from community. So there's such history there, but... Mm -hmm. What, what we don't talk about, at least in ways that move us forward, is, is the history of slavery in this country, mm -hmm. you know, the history of lynching in this country. Mm -hmm. um, we sort of give it a week in our curriculum, but not to help us understand what you just said, which is how did we get to a place where the only way white people can feel better is by projecting hatred against black and brown people. I mean, it just, we got to be better than this. It's time for another break. This is Jingles. 
composed by Wes Montgomery and arranged by Al Kiger, featuring Kiger on trumpet. Again, performed at the Berkshire Music Barn in 1959 in Lenox, Massachusetts. On February 22nd, via Twitter, the KIPP Charter Network announced that it terminated co-founder Mike Feinberg due to allegations of sexual misconduct that, quote, run counter to our values. This is a charter organization that has submission and obedience as primary teaching methods. We'll discuss KIPP with Linda Nathan when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Exceptions Aren't the Rule, and my guest is Linda Nathan, author of When Grit Isn't Enough. In this segment, we address the Grit Masters of the Knowledge is Power program, or KIPP, a charter school organization, and its methods of training its majority-minority students in submission and obedience. Uh, Jim Horn on here who wrote a book called Work Hard, Be Hard, which I think um, was an answer to Jay Matthews' Work Hard, Be Nice. And But but it's one of those things where you have to recognize that this is the, the structure you, you're fighting against, right? Not only the fact that there are kips, you know, and that there are people that believe in that kind of thing, but that they're advertised in journalism, right? They're advertised via newspapers, via all sorts of, of moneyed advantage, Uh, to be the answer. Here's what I would say. I would say um, that the the impetus, well, let me say two things. First of all, white people who start things like hip, you know, and they they say, the the two founders say, you know, we learned this from an African-American woman. Right. And I would say, that's cool. That's something an African-American woman can do, and you should not. Right. The polemics of race are, you know, different when she tells kids to sit up straight 
than when you, as a white man or a white woman, act like this. Right. So it's not that I'm not trying, you know, there's nothing wrong with telling kids to sit up, to look you in the eye, to ask questions, to nod, to track the speaker. Like you and I would talk about that. What's crazy and what I was trying to point out is the extreme to which this has gone and who is doing what to whom. Right. So, so that's, I think, what's really problematic about this. This is white people, for the most part, policing black and brown bodies. That's right. And that's right. That's the trouble. Because it's not about, there isn't anything wrong with telling kids to sit up. And for some kids, sitting up is a really important way to learn. For other kids, it's not. Now, it may be that because of systemic racism in this country, black and brown kids, particularly boys, have to sit up even straighter than white kids because of the way the world sees them or doesn't see them. And so that's an important lesson to learn. But I don't feel that the schools I've visited, at least the KIPs that I've seen or the other no excuses schools that I've seen, that there's any deconstruction of that systemic racism. Well, like you can imagine them talking about racism in a school where they are advo- like openly advocating a, a racist hierarchy. <laughs> well, right? you, know, you, you, you might imagine, um, I, I could imagine a school saying, yeah, and we talk about this very openly with our kids, that the reason we're training you this way or teaching you this way is because we don't, I mean, I used to do that with a lot of my kids. We had open lunch and kids would go out and get lunch in the neighborhood. And then, you know, I would have a kid come back uh, having had an interaction with the police and not Mm -hmm. a happy one. And I would say, look, Richard, you know, you can't go walking around this neighborhood that is a, you know, fairly white neighborhood and act the fool and talk the way you want to talk or laugh the way you want to talk and not expect that someone's going to stop you on the street because you are a black male. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't mind if I learned that all of these no excuses schools also taught <laughs> about racism. Yeah, and, and, I understand you know. what you're saying, but this is a lot of if and and perhaps, and this would be a great thing, and understanding the structural nature of these things and talking about them are great things. But uh, I've not read a single thing about a KIPP school that, that suggests that there's anything more going on. But what you write in your book even, um, that they're, you're educating values of submission, obedience, self-control, all right. – uh, to what purpose and what end so that you can not jaywalk uh, and get thrown in jail. There is a value to being protective of students in the quote unquote real world, you know, where they have to go out in these environments. But part of this, uh, part of your hope as an educator is that you you can find out ways within the school system to go out into the community and fight yeah. against that oppression right. instead right. of actually living the oppression in the school. Yeah, no, I, I, that's my hope. I mean, I would love the KIPP people to read this book and to say, you know, we've gone too far. And I, I would love that to be a sort of retraction of some of these practices. I would love the KIPP people to say, um, yeah, we've, we've rethought our practices and we think they really were based on some racist stuff. And we apologize or whatever they need to say. I, I would love that.
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Linda Nathan, author of When Grit Isn't Enough. A high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the college for all promise. But again, I think the what we what we run up against is that there aren't very many Linda Nathans, and there may be more than I think, but there probably are not as many as there need to be um, when you have um, as many, uh, probably double, triple, quadruple the the Jay Matthews or Jay Green, who is uh, um, a University of Arkansas education reform chair head or whatever, um, you know, is paid by Walmart to do education reform at the, at the higher education level, which means promote charter education, promote, promote things like KIPP schools, promote corporate schools, promote uh, uh, hedge fund schools. Uh, there are success academies. You know, Success Academy in New York is a hedge fund owned school, right? These are the things that are making uh, headlines or the, that, that the, again, the white privileged class is making money off of. Yeah. No, I listen. I work with a little charter school right now, and um, our, our board just voted. This is the first time, I think, in the country um, that a charter school voted to join the district. And so we're hoping that the Boston Public Schools will take a Commonwealth charter school and let us be part of the district, which mm. for me would be just fantastic and would actually be why charter schools were started in the first place. They were not started to be separate districts. They were started to be um, laboratories of innovation. And there was never a sense with the early founders that they would be standalone districts like what's happened. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful in the next couple of years that the Boston Public Schools will be able to accept this little school in and that that might be the wave of the future. Because I think, you know, we, we, we have so denuded our cities of the financing to create strong schools. And the charters have certainly, you know, they're not new. They go all the mm -hmm. way back to the late 60s, 70s. But, you know, you go to cities like Washington or New Orleans or Oakland, and, you know, half the district is now charter. Right. Um, right. And, you know, that means and, and you know, it, it, it may not always be a bad thing. There's some excellent charters out there that have done just some really interesting work. But we do have to question what it means for our public institutions. Well, we have to be at least realistic that a charter is is a business proposition first. I think well, now you have you have already talked about the ways charters came about and and this is yeah. this is fine and I'm happy to as you say to see them as innovation centers that would fit nicely or should be within school districts so that the district itself can learn from them and right. implement what is successful this makes perfect sense but the charters we have again the the corporate charters the kips the success academies these are not intended Right. They are first business opportunities for people to put money into. Well, I think that that's a, that's a segment, and that's what's really right. scary. Um, it's and a big those, segment. No, yeah. I don't know, actually. Um, I'm trying to remember Sam's oh, – there's a fabulous book about sort of the economics of all this. I'm just blanking on his last name. He was a teacher at Beacon Academy in New York. Mm. 
and then he's a, he's an economist and he wrote this really great book about the econ- the economics of all these charters hmm. and he does a really good job sort of showing what you're talking about how much additional funding an organization like KIPP gets and that explains a lot of the success because mm-hmm. the per pupil expenditure is probably triple, right. quadruple what it is in most areas. And it's what it should be. You know, the one thing that the charter sector has shown us is that if you have more funding, it's a whole lot better for kids. Sure. Yeah, yeah. well, these are, yeah, these are truisms that unfortunately for some reason don't really matter when it comes to tax support and things of that nature. But, but um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if this is a one-to-one uh, analogy necessarily, but I, I did a, a show a while ago on um, the Choctaw Academies, which uh, were um, schools for Native Americans, Choctaws in particular, but other, yeah. uh, other nations as well, at the time of, you know, basically conquest, right, where yeah. – um, where they it struck me as being very much a charter organization and and actually having really extreme parallels to the charters we have now um generally what was happening was that there was a boondoggle for the most part because if you set up a charter school you got a lot of government dollars anyway so it was was native american yeah yeah it was yeah yeah it was actually on former plantations also where they would they would set up uh or not former plantations on plantations where they'd have choctaw academy uh schools that you know the the top tier of of choctaw tribal families would send uh you know their their firstborn son to learn to to learn how to be white in the first oh, place, yeah, to learn how to to speak the yeah. forked tongue of the Englishman. <laughs> right. so, but 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 it's the same as the for-profit. <clears throat> it, it totally is that, exactly right. It's exactly right, right. because they, I think that in as I was doing this research, I, I maybe I should have known, but I didn't know that the school that the for profits get all their money also from the government. Mm-hmm, I, I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. Yeah. So I think you know that's the that's the scandal is uh, the fact that, that it's government money. That's right. It's time for our final break. This is Monk's Sphere, composed by Gary McFarlane. One more from the 1959 Lenox School of Jazz concert, where improvisation, an element critical to jazz, was not approached in a systematic manner, but its importance in playing jazz was stressed by its directors. Where does one start, for instance, and who is to say what's right and wrong? The teacher's job was largely one of encouraging students to give more critical thought to their work. When Interchange returns, we look at vocational education, or what is now termed career and technical training. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest, Linda Nathan, 
author of When Grit Isn't Enough, says of arts education, quote, I don't know another way to help people pose problems so differently and to help people cross barriers and divides more effectively than through the making and creating of art, unquote. Seems more than a little necessary these days. Let's not let's not go away from this conversation before we just kind of take a look at the title. Um, mm. When grit isn't enough, a high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart college for all. Excuse me, thwart the college for all promise. Now you take that apart quite a bit in in the book itself, actually questioning the promise itself. College for all, not necessarily, not always a good thing. What is college anyway now that there's a proliferation of all kinds of colleges and college, going to college doesn't mean graduating from college and going to college means debt and going to college is not a promise of a job. So all these things are within this title, poverty and inequality. So many of your students who had what you would call grit failed at college, failed for many reasons, not because of grit, not, not lack of grit. Right. Um, and the system is uh, obviously uh, intrinsically sort of stacked against so many of these students. Right. right. I mean, that's what I, I, I am trying to explain. And, you know, when the book first came out and I was on the radio, um, one of my former students heard me. She wasn't one of the ones I interviewed. And she emailed me and thanked me for writing the book and telling her story. You know, she went off to college. She has not finished college. She's working still, you know, as best she can. She has a young son now, and she said, um, no one really understands what it feels like to have had so much promise and not been able to live up to it. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to do better, and that's why I write the book, not to chastise wonderful educators, many of whom I know and admire, but to remind us about the nuances and the complexity. Well, these are important things, and I think in particular, uh, and I've had many of these conversations myself, when people like to hold up uh, success stories right. as proof right. that everyone should be a success right. story, e right. even within even as they don't actually train the fo you know train their own lens on their particular own communities. Right. Um, right. But that if there's one success, there should be many. And if you're if the others aren't succeeding, then you're doing something wrong. They're right. not uh, they're not gritty enough They're They right. just don't have what it takes. I always want I just don't know what's what's the next position for these particular arguments. Right. What's next if you say these are failures of grit and almost everyone then is a failure? Yeah. I mean, I I think the solutions are multifaceted in many layers. And I think part of what needs to happen is an understanding amongst all educators, you know, K-12 and, and higher ed educators, how we do our teacher education programs, how we think about these issues. It has to be that we're working with our kids to understand the perniciousness and the all-encompassingness of um, racism, mm -hmm. that that is a, a foundation of the history of this country, and that to not teach 
about race and social class, that's a mistake. To, to pretend that it doesn't exist uh, is wrong. And to help young people understand the world they are going to enter into, that's why it is so important to teach history in all of its many layers and levels. And not to say to kids, you know, just be gritty and you too will succeed. Of course, the opposite is not not true. You, you, mm-hmm. you can't succeed unless you have grit and persistence. But so often it's not enough. And, and that's what I'm trying to spell out here. One of the kids I interviewed, actually, I don't think he made it into the book, but one of our middle class kids you know, was uh, such an interesting young man adopted by a white family, upper middle class family. So he was raised, even though he is a young man of color, he was raised, if you will, middle class and white. And his experience on campus was so different than other people. So he messed up um, and had to drop out for a semester, but his family could bail him out Mm. easily, easily. And, And he saw his other classmates not have that same experience. Uh, he's really a wonderful young man now, deeply, deeply kind of rooted in thinking about how he made it and why, money, class, and how other people didn't. Mm-hmm. Lack of money, lack of access, and racism. So I, 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 I hold his story up sometimes to say to people, how do we help more educators understand that complexity so that when kids or if kids get stuck we don't say it's your fault we, right. we help figure out a way to navigate this is doug storm on interchange my guest is linda nathan author of when grit isn't enough a high school principal examines how poverty and inequality thwart the College for All Promise. Well, it's important to situate these things within the communities that they come from as well. I think that the you know, having the onus on educators on a system of education is 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 trying to um, operate, you know, from within. Uh, from from being surrounded by wolves, right? Like your lambs being surrounded by wolves. The yeah. the culture itself isn't offering these opportunities. And you do mention a few, what I would say are uh, your, your successful programs, I think, at Fenway with trying to integrate into uh, career um, programs with... Um, with some uh, local businesses, some big mm-hmm. big corporations as well. And mm-hmm. one, uh, while I think that's fascinating and, and is a good idea, it's like learning to balance your checkbook. You don't do it anymore, <laughs> um, but you, you don't learn the practical aspects of life at all in school generally. And right. so I, I agree with many of these things. The question I often, I guess, get sort of lost in is I, I think arts education, to me, fantastically important for many of the reasons you've already said, and also because we don't have it um, generally. And most of us, uh, arts means, you know, recording something. Uh, (laughs) That's, that's, that's our artistic ability now is recording and replaying and, and things of that nature. But we, we struggle with the idea of how we fit into a world that values your business position, your labor position, your work position, and yeah. trying to teach the realities of that 
and teach yeah. success within that system yeah. is yeah. is the I get that needing to be primary, but it also yeah. teaches the value of that system. Right. right. It's even if you're critical of it, you're promoting it. Right. Because you have to, you know, you have right. to operate within it, but yet you don't want to necessarily teach the values of that system. Well, I think, you know, listen, it, this is the dilemma of a teacher, right? Um, my job as a teacher is to teach and to help you understand um, the economic system that we live in, to help you explore perspectives on those values. That would be a way to say it. Um, but one of the reasons that I do come back to the real possibilities of rich arts education is that I don't know another way to help people pose problems so differently and to help people cross barriers and divides more effectively than through the making and the creating of art. Because mm -hmm. it's only when you sing a song in someone else's language or you delve into a piece of literature, poetry, a play, a movement piece that deeply explores someone else's experience, do you get it at your cellular level? And only when we can do that can we begin to think about different kinds of labor positions, business positions, right. economic positions that we want to embrace. Well, you actually point out the very reason we don't have arts education, because that's exactly what happens. You begin to question, right? You begin to understand alternative ways to think about life. And okay. the majority of the people involved in how we do our, our lives, how we do work, how we do school, these are business agendas. These are these are not these are political agendas. They're not about you trying to live a, a good life or to flourish. And arts education does create, as you say, the opportunity to question those particular uh, social constructs. Right. So I have to keep working at questioning <laughs> constructs. That's what yes, I'm. That's yes. what I'm about. <laughs> Is there anything you wanted to say, Linda, that we didn't touch on that you think we need to, or that you want to tell any uh, any particular story that we didn't? I, I guess the last thing I would say, just to your listeners, is I I have a bottle of, of water in front of me, and it's half full, <laughs> and some people see that as half empty, but I see it as half full, and and I see it as half full because of the wonderful students and teachers I've worked with for over 40 years. And I know that they are going to help lead this country and this world to a better place. I know it. That's our show. We'll close with one last song from the Lenox School of Jazz. This is Lone Ranger and the Great Horace Silver composed by Indiana University's David Baker. Baker passed away in 2016 at the age of 84. Thanks to Linda Nathan for joining us to discuss the misleading concept of training minority students to be gritty in the face of their desperate circumstances. 
You know, instead of rectifying the inequalities that make grit a necessity for anyone living in poverty. Linda Nathan is the author of When Grit Isn't Enough, published in October of 2017 by Beacon Press. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and Bryce Martin is studio engineer. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.